You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Bloomberg Business Week on this Friday. Carol Masser along with Paul Sweeney today. And if you begin with the introduction of this book that is just out, it says every morning, five million people around the world start their day with a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. <laughs> we know it. I know it well. Uh, it is a family business, was a family business, started by our next guest's dad. And it's one that he took over in his 20s and was a CEO at Dunkin' Donuts for 35 Five years. Robert Rosenberg is the former CEO of Dunkin'. He's got a new book out, Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. He's also served on the boards of Sonic as well as Domino. Sonic, we actually talked to the former CEO, yeah. Clifford Hudson, earlier this week. And uh, Robert joins us on the phone from Martha's Vineyard. Robert, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. My pleasure. Well, thank you. Well, it's nice to have you here with us. You have had quite a tenure. I'm just curious, when you took over at the age of 25, did you, was there ever any doubt that this is what you were going to do? And what was it like to step into that position at what most would consider a pretty young age? It, it was a breathtaking request, <laughs> but I did, expect, I did expect to join the family business. I sort of grew up over the store, sort of figuratively. So I did all kinds of jobs, went to hotel school, and uh, went into the army, went back to graduate school. But I mean, I did a number of jobs, so I knew the business. But I mean, I never expected at twenty five to be to be in a position to have to assume responsibility for the overall business. So, Robert, when you do assume the top job at the age of twenty five, I'm interested to know what. How did you think about surrounding yourself in terms of a team? Uh, presumably, you'd look for some folks you not only trusted but that maybe had some skill sets you didn't have. How did you build that first team when you were there? Well, some of them I inherited, and they were terrific. Uh, but I had an opportunity while I was in graduate school to take a look at the company. I had studied strategy, and I took retailing under a, a wonderful teacher by the name of Walter Salmon. So I had an opportunity. That the company I took over wasn't called Dunkin' Donuts. It was called Universal Food System. Mm-hmm. It was eight little businesses, sort of a hodgepodge. And, and I had a hunch as a, as a kid, as a student, that companies can not only die as young companies from starvation, not enough capital and not enough uh, um, uh, people, but they can also die of indigestion. Now, our company wasn't dying of indigestion, but it was certainly suffering from it. So the first thing we did as a team was to change the strategy, and I also recruited some of my classmates from business school right out of Goldman, actually. They went into, after we graduated, one of my closest friends went to Goldman and took me a year or so to get him out, but I ultimately got him out, and then he brought another friend uh, from the uh, corporate finance department, and so we started to recruit some really extraordinarily talented people, allowed us to punch way beyond our weight in terms of a tiny little company. Imagine how hard it was to get people to give up jobs at Goldman to come to work for a small donut company (laughs) in Quincy, Massachusetts. It wasn't easy. Yeah, I bet. It must have been interesting. You know, when you took over the company... You know, how big was it? What was the financial state of it? You know, what kind of growth were you seeing at that point? The company earned $100,000. It was in eight <laughs> different businesses. There were nearing 100 stores. My father bought my uncle out, and my uncle started a competitive business. Imagine the dinner conversations about mm. that called Mr. Donut. <laughs> and and uh, they were overtaking us. So that one of them, my dad tried to sell the business. I traveled with him my second year of business school in New York to a private equity buyer. He was looking to get... A million dollars after taxes, always his dream. He's eighth-grade educated, yeah. self-made man, wonderful guy. 
Um, and, and so, um, <laughs> that, that was sort of the, the dilemma that we were facing at the time when I took over. All right. So talk to us about that strategy in the early years to growth. Was it focusing on what you did best, which I'm presuming is the, the donut business? Talk to us about your strategy that eventually got you to where the company was as, as a more mature company. We basically took the seven or eight little businesses and we either closed them down or we sold them off. And we took the one diamond in the rough, which really um, was uh, Duncan, but it was more like diners. They sold all kinds of food, scrambled eggs in the morning, and they varied in size from 18 seats to 90 seats. There wasn't anything common about it. So we basically decided on a couple of things. We were going to focus on one business, focus on donuts and coffee, change the menu. We were going to focus in certain markets and build brand. And it was a strategy that worked extraordinarily well. We went from 100,000 pre-tax profits in five years. We were at 800,000 pre-tax profits. We were the third company to go public after McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Duncan was the third. And at the end of the 60s, when we went public in 68, I mean, it was a little bit like a high-tech company. And before <laughs> you know it, the company that we couldn't sell for a million and a half dollars before um, before tax payments was now worth, I think, on my 30th birthday, something on the order of 120 or $150 million market. Jeez. Yes. That's amazing. Became, Yo, go ahead, please. No, please go go continue. <laughs> Unfortunately, the next five years weren't so successful. I lost focus and began to do the very same thing my dad did. I changed the strategy, decided we were a franchising company rather than a donut and coffee company, and I almost drove the company off a cliff with everybody following behind me. Luckily, saw the error of my ways, and uh, we were able to recover. And, and that was the beginning of really um, a maturation process of better policies, plans, better listening, less arrogance. Uh, it really changed us. We had transformation moments in terms of our management, and uh, we were off to the races and for the next 20 years. The same team worked together for the next 20 years, and we, we never looked back. Well, what was – we've got about a minute, and then we're going to do some news and come back. But, I mean, what was the pressure – or why did you feel like you had to kind of deviate from the strategy, the core strategy? I got seduced uh, wrongly by a public market. We were selling at 60 times earnings. Can you imagine a 30-year-old uh, beyond intoxicating? And it was seductive. So I decided that we had to keep growing at 50% a year wrongly. Mm. So I was chasing the wrong goals and went way beyond what our competence was. And began. I started another food service chain called Charles Goodlight Fish and Chips, and on and on. It was negotiating and talking to IBM about opening franchise learning centers. It, 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 it was just wrong. It was the wrong aiming point. And if you have the wrong aiming point and the wrong strategy, there's very little you can do to build a successful business. And when you got thousands of people and franchise owners and their lives right. involved, it can be cataclysmic. So, you know, one thing I, I'm curious about, Robert, first of all, uh, the, for a little perspective for everybody, when you did take that CEO job back in 1963, your salary that first year was $15,600, which I wanted to point out when I started in journalism some 25 years ago, that was like my first job. That's about what I was paid. <laughs> I think it was a little bit more money back then. So listen, the book, the way you write it, you write about six eras. And I'm curious if you have a favorite era um, during your tenure of the company, and if there was a time that maybe wasn't so much fun? Well, the time that wasn't very much fun was the second, as I changed strategy wrongly, 
had the wrong objectives and almost uh, ruined the company and came to the point where the board had said, we're now a public company. We've had enough of you, <laughs> and and we'd like you to find a replacement. I quickly told them I thought that was their job, but give me another quarter. I thought we had seen the error of our ways, and I in particular, uh, I thought really did come to understanding what we were doing wrong, what my stakes were, what our responsibilities as leadership were, and uh, luckily they agreed, and we never looked back from there. The best era, there were a lot of them, but I think the 80s was a good era because it was the time that we changed the business in rather dramatic ways, uh, some of which worked out wonderfully well, some moderately well, uh, but particularly uh, the two things that, that worked out particularly well. One was a trip to, to the Philippines where I was going there to explain to the franchisees they couldn't take the donuts out of the store, but they could... You know, and they were taking them out and putting them into uh, theaters and gas stations and and convenience stores. And and I, when I got there, I found out that the the wives of the board members were really in, in business doing this. And I didn't have the heart to say no to them. And when we started to reconceptualize the business, we began to think that maybe they had a better way to go to market. Uh, when you could take the product to other people, workshop, travel, to play. A little bit like Coca-Cola and Tab, yeah. putting it in a bottle away from the soda fountain and selling it everywhere. And that was kind of transformational for us. And the other thing was we changed the design of our business to, to a much more self-service. And that allowed us to really increase the amount of coffee and beverage business. And we did a shift from being bakery-led <clears throat> bakery to, to beverage-led. And that was a wonderful era. Yeah. So, That's so great. Robert, you talk about it in your book how a company's success is determined by how well it adapts to change here. Boy, and a lot of change uh, we're all dealing with these days, and so it must be even that much more difficult to manage a business. What were some of the the big, I guess, pivots you guys maybe had to deal with, or some big, you know, big events that happened that said that said, boy, this is gonna, really going to impact our business. We need to really pay attention here. Well, that's crisis, and in terms of crisis, there were probably four or five what I would call existential crises that could have spent, you know, really spell the end of the business as it existed. The first was our contract. We were operating on commissions from supplies, which was deemed illegal ultimately before that ever occurred. We changed to a royalty system. That was a huge change in it, uh, when we had 200 units. Another was a class action lawsuit during the 70s when I I told you we took our eye off the balls. Uh, yeah. Some of our franchisees became very disgruntled. They sued us, and we would declare the class, which would have been cataclysmic at the time. The stock was selling at an all-time low price, and uh, the, the, the basic judgment was about 80 or $100 million, much more than the company was worth. That would have spelled the end. And then we were in a hostile takeover at the end of the 80s, uh, and that was a huge um, sort of existential threat to the company. Ultimately, the the fellow that was trying to take us over when lost his empire and probably would have lost Dunkin' Donuts if I hadn't found a white knight, if we hadn't found a white knight to save us at one minute to midnight. So there were crises we faced, but certainly nothing like a pandemic. And yeah. out of it, there are lessons learned in terms of how to handle a crisis. Well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like as you, you talk through these stories, it's like one Harvard Business School case study, <laughs> you know, after another. Um, I do wonder, just real quickly, when Starbucks came out in the 70s, were you like, uh-oh, now that's it? No. Uh, basically, I saw Starbucks as somewhat different than Dunkin'. Dunkin' was Q as our quick service restaurant okay. featuring convenience and, and value. 
and people on the go. Starbucks was a third place, so something between uh, office and home, and it was a much more uh, Tony offering. I can't pick the right exact word, but it, but it appealed in a different way, and, and it wasn't so focused on speed and convenience and value, much more on ambience and specialty, uh, sort of a panache. Now, we've started <laughs> to bump into each other more recently, but not yeah. back in those days so much. Well, hey, Robert. Oh, sorry, Carol. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I've had a lot of uh, <laughs> egg and bacon on a croissant. My husband, I can't go into a Dunkin' without getting him some of the old-fashioned donuts, i, I got to tell you. So, Robert, I, we, we have to ask before we let you go, what's your favorite donut? Mine is Bavarian cream. <sighs> I love that, too. I like a lot, but I like a jelly stick or a lemon stick. That's, that's a cake stick filled with either lemon or jelly, along with Dunkin' iced coffee. That's my go-to. <laughs> that's your go-to. <laughs> I love Dunkin' Ice Coffees. I got to say, that's like one of my favorites. What a treat. Good luck with your book, and hopefully we can get you back here soon because I'd love to talk a little bit more about your Wonderful. experience. Thank, thank you space. both. Yeah, take, take care and stay well. Robert Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin', there for 35 years, Dunkin' Donuts, and his book, check it out. It's a fun read. Uh, it's called Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. 